Welcome to episode 174 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, man. Not much. How about you? You know, I'm excited to talk to you as always in our weekly appointment here because it's question cast, which is always a lot of fun. Nice. I do love me some good question cast. I know you do. I'd like to say on the side, I think my assessment is you are the kind of person who has never met a question you didn't like. Yeah. I mean, there are some dumb questions. Whoever made up that (laughs) saying about no stupid questions definitely is wrong, but most genuine questions are worth asking and worth answering. I agree with you on that. So in that spirit, the first question I want to ask you is what are you affirming this week? So I'm affirming a little book that I recently read. Uh, You may have heard of it. It's called Philemon or Philemon or Philemon. Everybody pronounces it differently, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, bringing the sermon for Lord's day worship, uh, which is tomorrow from our perspective and was a few days ago from the perspective of our listeners. And, you know, I've, I've read Philemon, uh, Philemon, Philemon, I think technically I, you know, one of, okay. One of the ways that I prepare for sermons is you can actually, I think I've run for this before. If you go to sermon audio and you know a little bit about how RSS feeds work, you can build an RSS feed that brings you like all of the sermons from sermon audio on a given book. Wow. So like I, one of the ways I prepare for sermons, since I don't have a lot of study time is I usually know, you know, like a month or so in advance that I'm going to be preaching. And I generally have an idea of what, what passage I want to preach on. So I'll throw that sermon audio feed in and I'll just listen to a, like a ton of sermons. It's almost like, like deep diving a commentary. And it's funny cause there's one guy that was trying to pronounce it right. He kept on saying Philemon and I kept on thinking he was saying like <laughs> filet mignon. So, but I, you know, it's just, the book is so packed with uh, different thoughts and different ideas. And it's not your typical Pauline letter um, in that it's very short, which is not Paul's normal way of doing things, but also uh, it's, it's on one level, very personal. Uh, it's, you know, written to an individual, but it also has a lot of really practical information for the church as a whole. So I'm excited to share with the congregation tomorrow what, you know, what I think God has given me in my study. Um, and I've just read, read Philemon and I'm going to keep saying Philemon because I think that's probably closest to the Greek. Wow. I love it. But let me get this straight. So in our time of affirmations and denials, you basically just affirmed the scripture, which sets the bar so high for me that I can't possibly achieve over it. It's true. I think I won (laughs) affirmations and denials this week. Yeah. You, I feel like you always win them because you always have some kind of great affirmation or denial that has like a wonderful spiritual connection. Not always. Sometimes it's like I affirm Pokemon. Yeah, but I feel like what we do on this podcast is we turn that, even that, into some kind of amazing spiritual connection. That's true. There's a lot of good sermon illustrations with Pokemon having to do with evangelism. You got you, <laughs> you got to catch them all. <laughs> see, see what just happened here. Although that got dangerously close to like some kind of weird Wesleyan, you c- catch them, God cleans them situation. But I, I affirm where you're going with that. Generally speaking, yes. Yeah, I hope that God doesn't clean the fish because cleaning the fish is usually not a good thing. For the fish, that is. 
How about you? What oh, are you I, affirming before we go I further? I still want to unpack that in all of its beauty, but you're right to make us move on. Uh, this week, I'm affirming with uh, an application for your phone that or mobile device of your choosing that I just discovered recently and I think is actually brilliant. So the app is called Be My Eyes, and it brings together two people groups. There is a people group that is blind or low vision, and there is a people group that are sighted volunteers. And what this app does is it just connects the two people. So if you download this app, you can choose which group you belong to. And then people that are in a situation that are blind or have low vision can actually make, send out a request for help. And then what it does is it immediately connects them to a sighted volunteer who accepts that request and then helps them in that literal moment with something that they're struggling with. And I just think this is a brilliant piece of technology. This is like, for me, quintessential, like redeeming technology in such a way that it really helps to meet a practical need in a practical situation and gets you to connect with some, somebody else that you would never even met. So Be My Eyes is something I think everybody should check out. I wasn't, before I downloaded this app, like particularly passionate about this particular thing, but I've really just grown to appreciate how these, like it's, it's really simple things. It's like somebody might have a request because they're in the grocery store and they're trying to check expiry dates or they're shopping and they're trying to distinguish between two colors. And they just want to affirm that what the t-shirt that they're buying is navy blue as opposed to some other color. And it, it's really struck me at one, what a gift sightedness is, but two, how this is just a simple way for people to love on somebody else by doing something that seems so unquestionably natural. So I would, again, just tell everybody, at least go check out Be My Eyes and see what it's all about. Really unique, really wonderful app. Yeah. You know, as someone who's colorblind, not, not significantly, but who's colorblind, this makes a lot of sense to me because I, I can tell you, like, when I'm out shopping for clothes, if I am by myself and I don't have my wife with me, I will wander around the store trying to find somebody who can tell me, like, something as simple as, like, what color is this tie? So and it's it's kind of embarrassing, like you walk up and you ask what seems like a really stupid question. And sometimes people look at you like, are you an idiot? And you're like, no, I just have like a disability that I can't see colors. So this is a cool idea. I, I like this. Uh, I like this idea. Of course, it also got me thinking what other manifestations of this particular connectedness represented in the app might be helpful. And of course, I immediately thought of theology. I was like, wouldn't it be great if there's like a connection between people that could just reach out for theological questions? And if somebody wanted to accept that question, would immediately FaceTime with them and have a quick conversation? Like, that's also kind of cool. But I just love this idea. And I have to say, like, so I think you're the first person in our like extended family that has the colorblind thing. And one of the strange ways that I think we've interacted with you is like, for some reason, that's become like a giant joke at your expense. Like <laughs> we, we always love to like hold up stuff and be like, what color is this? Do you know what color this is, Tony? As if it's like some giant game, like it's just a joke that never gets old. Yeah, there's there's something hardwired into the human species that when you find out that someone is colorblind, you have to ask them what color something is. It's like yeah, for built sure. into humanity. I mean, I think sure. I think on some level it actually is like people being colorblind is so far outside of most people's experience that they almost don't know how to interact with it. So they they kind of have to like figure it out, like what color is this? And they're expecting you to return. Like I think the impulse is probably like, I know that this shirt is blue. 
I'm going to ask you what color it is. So that way I can better understand like what you're seeing. Um, there's a really interesting video. If you go online uh, on YouTube, there's a, a kid who basically he takes he's way severe colorblind, way worse than I am. But he takes things like Skittles or Starbursts or jelly beans and stuff like that. And he'll he'll videotape himself videotape. That's like 1986. He'll he'll take a video of him like sorting the, the different uh, colors and kind of showing you like what he ends up with. And sometimes he gets pretty close and sometimes he's way, way, way off. So it's interesting to kind of see like how things look to him and what colors uh, seem the same. Because most people, like the kind of color blindness I have, I get colors that are very similar to each other mixed up. But some color blindness, you actually get colors that are very, very different mixed up and you can see other kinds of colors. So this kid, sometimes he'll get like a bright green and a bright red Skittles completely mixed up and they look exactly the same to him. So it's interesting. Check it out. I mean, sight is one of those things that is because it seems like so normal and just so normative that we often don't really consider the implications of how deep a concept it is. And of course, the Bible speaks at length in using sightedness as a metaphor for regeneration and the ability through the Holy Spirit to recognize God and to understand something about his character and who he is. And that by itself, we could speak about for at length. One of the things I've been thinking about that's so interesting in respect to colors and this application is that color to me is a bit like fiat currency in that it's a social construct. You know, like we know what green is because somebody taught us that this particular refraction of light into our eyes is green. So that when somebody's like, well, that looks like brown or you ask a color colorblind person, what does grass look like to you? And they describe blonde. It just, it just seems so mind altering that it could yeah. be different. And then when you ask, well, how do you even know? what that color is. What is the label that belongs to it? It's because, well, somebody taught us that there's a difference between green and blue and the sky is blue and the grass is green. And then I was also thinking this, let me down another rabbit hole to end this whole affirmation out about how beautiful it is to live in the day and age we do because we take for granted the fact that changing vision is not blindness. And yeah. this does have a really, I think, large spiritual component because I am a nearsighted. I need corrective lenses. And I've thought for a long time, if I lived in a different era, even like 70 years ago, but certainly in biblical times, the ability, if you lost even a portion of your sight in terms of its focus, would basically render you blind. And think about how awful that would be if you were farsighted yeah. and you couldn't read and there were no corrective lenses. Like, like that actually would be a horrible existence for me because of how much I love reading, especially in this day and age with our connectivity to the word of God in its various forms. Yeah. So I'm just so thankful for sightedness and so thankful for glasses. I mean, I really am because that is a part of my life that I couldn't imagine living without. And that is the grace of God. Yeah. You know, we could call this app that you're proposing, we could call it be my spiritual eyes or like be my eyes of faith. But you could, Ooh, you I could like, like you could use this app and like connect to someone and be like, could you read this to me? And then like take a picture of the Bible, like a passage in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, but don't do that yeah, if you're not actually sure. like if you're not actually sighted challenged, but like there yeah. are ways you could utilize this to sort of like expose people to the gospel. And these are people who are already kind yeah, of inclined sure. towards charity and generosity and, and the kinds of Christian virtues that 
um, a lot of times sort of indicate that someone is open to the gospel. Um, people who tend to be generous right. and that like we're we're going to be talking about a subject tonight that has to do with generosity. But like generosity is not a default natural human instinct. It's something that either has to be beaten into you, has to be taught, or it's something that is spiritually acquired. And a lot of times the people who are already generous because it's been taught into them, they're already sort of like geared up and ready to make that move to spiritual generosity as well. Right on. Man, that was well said. All right. So being that we've just uplifted everything, let's get negative, negative. What are you denying? Uh, I'm denying, you know, this isn't going to surprise anybody, especially if you've been active in our various social media worlds this week. I'm denying Molinism. Uh, I don't think I really need to say a whole lot more than that. But uh, I put up a little meme uh, that was a new meme format that was Squidward's Fun Facts. And I said, uh, if Jews and Muslims worship a different God, then so do Molinists. So for most people, they were like, Boom. yeah, that makes sense to me. There was a couple of people who thought that I was just the worst for saying that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the doctrine, the theology proper implications and anyone who tells you that Molinism is a is a doctrine about soteriology doesn't understand even what Molinism itself is trying to accomplish. Um, Molinists will tell you, no, Molinism is a doctrine about theology proper. It's about the nature of who God is and the nature of how God creates. It's not just about, you know, free will and sovereignty and, and salvation. So realistically, Molinism uh, postulates a God who receives information from his creatures and if we talk about the doctrine of divine simplicity, that means that Molinists affirm that God in some sense receives a portion of his being from his creatures. So it really is a radically different right. understanding of what it means for God to be God. It's not just as simple as, well, God God knows not only the realities, but the possibilities like Calvinists affirm that like that's just in the Westminster Confession. The difference with Molinism is that some of the possibilities that God knows are dependent on free decisions that creatures make that he does not determine. So those free the knowledge of those free decisions originates with a sort of an observational knowledge of the creature itself, even though this happens temporally prior to the creation of those creatures, God's knowledge of the free will choices of those creatures is still dependent on those creatures. So it really is a different system. We did an episode on Molinism. We, we, we talked about all this in that episode. I'll link that in the show notes. We also did, uh, I did an episode with Trevor, Marste uh, Trevor Marsteller uh, on uh, Arminianism, and we covered a lot of the same ground. Arminian, Arminianism is not exactly the same, but it has a lot of the same issues. So check it out. But I am denying Molinism. I will deny Molinism all day, every day, in every possible world. Wow, I love it. That's like some really just good classic denial action right yeah. there. And you're right. I would recommend everybody to go back and listen to both those things that you referenced. I can't remember the episode that we talked about it. It was some time ago. I'm trying to find it as we speak. But I think it's worth it because there's so much more we'd like to say, even if you're hearing that term and you're like, I have no idea what that is. We went into like a giant mole hole in a particular episode on that whole thing. And it's probably worth listening to because it'll give you some kind of frame of reference and an introduction if you've never heard it before. Yeah, it's episode 82. 82, check yep. it out. It's 82 worth your time. was Molinism. 
And it's uh, the episode, I think, is pretty good. But Molinism is all messed up. Oh, yeah. The episode is great. And by pretty good, I presume you mean the definitive episode on Molinism. You know, actually, I think we might be that, that might actually be pretty accurate in in modern terms, because more often than not, when I see people asking questions about Molinism, that's actually the episode that gets linked. Uh, it was linked on uh, monergism.com, which was a big deal. Um, I actually think it's probably one of the better. And I, I feel weird saying this because it's like we're tooting our own horn here. But <laughs> I actually think it's probably one of the more effective treatments of the issues at hand. I The reason we did that episode, the reason we approached it the way we had is because I hadn't encountered a critique of Molinism that really landed on the theology proper implications and what it meant for, for the doctrine of God and for salvation and for creation. I hadn't really run into that prior to that. It was a great conversation. I, I actually have gone back and listened to that a couple of times just because I found it so helpful and grounding in conversations about that topic. Be, and it's also, I think we merged it with Molinism and middle knowledge. Yep. So it's a wonderful treatment of both those things. And again, if you're like, what are those things? then this is the uh, certainly the podcast or the episode for you. All right. How about you? What are you denying? I'm going back also to kind of a classic denial. And this is hopefully not phoning it in, but I'm just once again, because I'm pretty sure I have now, ever since the time that I affirmed something twice and didn't realize that I had, <laughs> and it was like, you know, 40 episodes apart. Now I'm just defaulting to, I'm probably, I'm going to say things like, I'm sure I've probably denied this already, but I know I have in some respect and I'm just denying against really nonspecific language when it comes to either expressing anything about the gospel, but especially using music as a medium. Yeah. I, it just strikes me as it's sometimes it's not that the theology is particularly bad in the music that we listen to or are prone to listen to. It's just that it's particularly nebulous for no good reason. Yeah. And so when it, something is particularly nebulous, it makes me either question one, whether or not the person writing the song is really connecting with the gospel, with the spiritual truths, or whether they're just lazy in their expression of it. And this is not to say that we can't have wonderful songs that are, let's say, use a more simple expression in language, but talk about a profound, specific, and particular truth. I, I have no issue with that. It's more when it's just so ephemeral that I leave wondering, what is it that they're exactly trying to say? So let me pick on a particular group right now, which may trigger some, and that's okay. And that is, I'm going to pick on Jesus Culture only because I was listening, trying to give a listen to their new album. And I generally, I really enjoy their music. I think that they are catchy. I think that actually their arrangement and their use of melody is really above average. But I find often that their lyrics are just so nebulous yeah. that it doesn't leave much in terms of leaving you uplifted. Because if you were to hear this and you didn't have a Christian worldview, it would, you could apply it in so many different ways. So one of the, the songs that they have out right now that I think is particularly catchy is called Fierce. And uh, presumably, I mean, it's about God's love, but let me just read you quickly the words that are in the chorus. It sings, or they sing, like a tidal wave crashing over me, rushing in to meet me here. Your love is fierce, like a hurricane that I can't escape, tearing through the atmosphere. Your love is fierce. Now, there's nothing in that that's, let's say, like heretical per se, but there's also nothing in it that leads our hearts directly to the throne of God or to the sacrifice of Christ. And of course, it just makes me say or wonder, why not just tell us 
what you're actually trying to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like, that sounds like a Katy Perry song. It, well, that's the thing. You're right on. Like it very well could be this song for the most part could get airplay, I think on just any kind of contemporary radio station because it is so vague And this. They don't have a bit of a hallmark for doing this kind of thing, especially when they're talking about love that you could apply it in a romantic sense and not necessarily deviate from the words that they're using here. Not, not to mention that sometimes I think Christians can get so overly or overtly poetic yeah. that we lose again, the specificity of what we're saying here. It's better to rely on the poetic nature of the scriptures, which I think do automatically get tightly coupled with a gospel presentation. And here there's a decoupling that's happening where you're kind of like, eh, it's not really wrong, but it's not really right. And so yeah. because it's exactly in the middle it leaves me thinking, well, just the music is good, but I would like a whole lot more. Yeah. You know, another song um, that, that, that makes me think of, obviously like there's oceans, which is just like the most nothing vapid song there is. Like it doesn't have any real anger in anything except a catchy tune, but the song it's been real popular. And when you hear the song and you're kind of like listening to the lyrics, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, this is good. The song goodness of God by Bethel music. Have you heard that song? Oh, yes, I have. Like, if you look at the lyrics, I'm not going to go through all the lyrics, but like the lyrics don't really connect to anything. Right. It's just like, like, right, exactly. There's a time and a place for just like proclaiming the pot, like proclaiming the attributes of God in worship. But like, there's nothing in this song about salvation, about the gospel, about redemption, about like the closest thing that it gets to is the line. It says, your mercy never failed me. But like, other than that, like, there's nothing about the gospel. And, you know, when you think about, you think about, you know, we've had some requests and we'll probably do this after we finish up the Micah series. We've had some requests to actually talk about like, what's wrong with Bethel music? What's wrong with Hillsong music? Like, what are the problems both as like organizations, but also like the the music itself. This song was written uh, sort of, although the, the accounts of when and how vary depending on when you're reading them, but it was written surrounding this incident where a, a young family at Bethel Redding had a child that was ill and it looked like they were going to die. And this song either was written prior to that or by, by a friend of the family or it may have been written after he got better. It, it's not clear. But like the mercy that never fails in this song, if you trace it back to what they're originally talking about is not the mercy of God in saving sinners. It's the mercy of God right. in saving that child's life, which thank praise God that the child didn't die, but, but it's not talking about the gospel. It's talking about something else. And like I said, there's a time and place to sing praises about what God has done for us outside of the gospel. But I think when you're, you have a platform like Bethel music does or Jesus culture, which is just sort of another version of Bethel music. Um, you really do have an obligation to like proclaim the gospel that, that doesn't seem like for sure they do that. Like they, they write their music for Christians, but they also write their music hoping non-Christians will hear it, but they don't ever really talk about or sing about how God saved us from sin or from, from, you know, from hell or whatever. It, it's usually this sort of vague proclamation of the goodness of God, but it doesn't ever get that specific. Yeah, it lacks substance. It lacks teeth. So I actually like the way you ended that because that's a good teaser right there. Some point we're going to talk about that in all of step because it's actually very complex, as you alluded to. We're talking about not only making of music and you can compartmentalize a song with respect to its lyrical content, but also what about if the lyrical content is on point, but 
the organization or the authors or the composers, the musicians who are bringing it together come from a very different theological persuasion. Does that contaminate the music? We definitely will talk about that at some point. So that's probably the best place to, to leave that and tease it out. So let's get to a question. And we have just one question tonight because I think we're going to have a lot to say about this and we want to give it its proper due. And before we play that beautiful voicemail, let's remind everybody that you can give us a call and leave a voicemail by dialing. Actually, I guess you can't dial anymore, right? It's just like punch the number in or yeah, I mean, put is it, it into your contacts. I, I think it's still dialing. Like you still dial the phone. Is it though? I mean, dial doesn't yeah, but like re- a dial by definition is rounded in like a, you know, a device that you, you turn. Yeah. But even like when you had buttons on a phone that you push and it wasn't a rotary phone, you still said you were dialing the phone. But is that because it's just like a throwback to the rotary? Well, yeah, we of just course carried it over the language. Like you said, videotape before. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> it's so nerdy. So that number Please call us is 607-444-2767. Bros. There it is. All right, so let's get to the voicemail. Hey, Jesse and Tony. It's Jackson, your favorite listener from Central California. A little reformed weathercast says that it's 55, partly cloudy in Fresno, perfect to enjoy a little gluten-free beer and some good theology. I was recently talking with some of my not-reformed friends about tithing, And I'm personally convicted that at least 10% to my local body is what is commanded by our Lord. But I was wondering what the confessionals and catechisms say about tithing and what verses are executed. Thanks, brothers. Keep those Arminian tears flowing. Brother Jackson asks a great question here. I've been waiting for somebody all my life or all 174 episodes to pose this question because I like where he's coming from. Here's clearly a brother who is concerned about what it means to give rightly and to have behavior shaped by the scriptures. And so I think that's kind of maybe, as I perceive it, the genesis for this question of what do the confessions say about tithing? And so I think that's a good place to start. But the reason why we have just this one question is I think that's going to be a great launching point for bringing us back into the scriptures on this idea of tithing, which to my recollection, which clearly is not as good as yours, we have never spoken about before. I don't believe we have, not directly at least. I mean, we, I'm sure we've touched on things that we will bring into the conversation tonight, but I don't think we've ever run headfirst into the tithing question. So kick us off then, like with respect to his specific question about tithing and the confessions, do you see that somewhere in the confessions? And if so, where do you see it? Well, I'm not as familiar with the uh, three forms of unity as I am with the Westminster, and I haven't really researched this in the three forms of unity, so I don't know for sure when we say, you know, when we say the confessions, we're generally talking about this broad, um, this broad range of reformed confessional documents. But I don't right. know of anywhere in the Westminster standards um, or the Baptist modifications of the Westminster standards that specifically directly address this question. We'll talk about a couple spots that I, I think and that you think um, give us some insight into how the Westminster divines might have answered this question or might have approached this topic. But I don't think there's any direct answer that we're going to find in the confessions. Yeah, I agree. So is there a spot where you feel like there's kind of some implicit or implied or embedded sense about giving? Yeah, I mean, I think the assumption by the divines that there is a body of believers 
that the body of believers has some sort of cohesion and some sort of permanence and that they have ministers that are provided for by the congregation financially implies some sort of understanding that the people of God will be um, taking care of the financial elements required to have a church. Um, there is the right. directory of public worship, which uh, is not technically speaking is not part of the confessional standards, but was released at the same time as the confessional standards. And that directory of public worship includes in the order of service um, a time to share and to to collect financial contributions that the people of God bring. Absolutely. So I, I tend to look at chapter 26 of the confession, um, which talks about the community of saints, which is, you know, we sometimes think of the community of saints and we think of it in just the sort of invisible church part. We don't think about the concrete like the, the physicalness of the community of saints. Um, we, we, you know, we bifurcate the visible and invisible church. But when you're talking about the community of saints, we're talking about not just the invisible church, but also the visible church. And so, um, in chapter 26, section two, it says saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual advocation. All, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion as God uh, offereth opportunity is to be extended to unto all those in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And so in this section here, it's saying that the saints are obligated to have a church like that. We, we don't have the option to not have some sort of institution that we call the church. Now, different traditions right. look out what it is that that institution is and how it functions differently. But the, the sort of um, Anabaptist perspective or the, the Quaker perspective that like, there's no institutional church. It's just a bunch of people in a room and we're all equal. We're all the same. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model has an institution. That institution is called the church. There are officers. They're expected to provide for the poor. Um, we can look at some of the biblical data. I'm sure we will when we get there. But they're expected to maintain a registry of people who are being supported by the church. They're expected to maintain a registry right. of members who are people who are members of the church, who are part of their body. There's an entity called the household of believers that is supposed to have different treatment than people who are outside of the household of believers. So when we look at all that, there's this institution called the church and any institution requires some sort of financial backing in order to maintain cohesion because you have to pay ministers. You have to, you have to have a gathering place, which requires some sort of financial commitment. There's all sorts of other financial elements that are required to maintain any kind of institution. And the church is not different. Right. You're right on that because I think that there's so much in the confessions that's just implied. It's almost as just a matter of fact or normative understanding that if you're going to have something that functions efficiently, there will be a part of that, which is basically going to require some kind of funding and finance. And so it's just implied. And because you stole the very place that I was going to go into the confessions as well, let me just like tag on by looking at the London Baptist confession. Cause I feel like I need to balance this out with that. There's <laughs> some, a little bit additional language in chapter 20, what did you read from 22, 26, 27, uh, it's 26 in the Westminster. 
So 26 in the Westminster, 27 in the LBCF. And there's just some additional language, which I think is, is not actually clarifying, but it helps give a little bit more flavor to what we're talking about. So where you ended with the idea of which communion, uh, the LBCF reads or continues to read, according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches. So it's, it's almost just like a qualifying statement to further express that what we're talking about here is, one, the rule of the gospel coming into play as being the measuring stick by which we basically mandate our generosity. And then second, that there should be a unique and natural expression that occurs in our own families and in the church as an extension of God's family. That is those who are of familiar descent, which would be those blood related to us. And then those of supernatural descent, which are those in our communities and our churches. So I think that very much affirms what brother Jackson is saying with his commitment to want to give in a way to his local body of the church. I think we both affirm that. And, and so that I think that he opens up the door for us to talk a little bit about his own personal conviction for the giving of tithe and that tithe represented in a very explicit way as 10% of your income. And even there, we could make the distinction, are we talking about gross or net? I've heard Christians debate that and come to almost fisticuffs. So yeah. there is that by itself. But let's use this as a springboard to talk a little bit about tithe and its place in the scripture so that we can understand, well, what should our conviction in giving be? And how do we establish that conviction by, I think, doing what the divines have done in their writing the confessions, and that is pushing us back into scriptures so that we can understand how we ought to have right thinking leading to right behavior. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, you know, this is one of those things that um, every Christian who has spent any time interacting with other Christians, the topic comes up. Because as hard as you try not to think about or watch or notice how much other people are putting in the plate as it passes by you, it's hard not to. It's hard not to see and not not to think about the fact that that person you always sit next to never contributes anything. And so the question naturally arises, is it okay that they never contribute anything? Should they be contributing something? Should they be contributing more? And, you know, I found that we actually very rarely ask ourselves Am I contributing enough? Have I contributed a sufficient amount? Should I be contributing more? Am I contributing too much? Sometimes I think we should even ask that. I know that sounds like a weird question, but it's possible, uh, I think, to make your own contribution to the church somewhat of a, a point of pride. And sometimes we actually rob the rest of the church um, of the the benefit to them of properly contributing by sort of compensating for their weaknesses. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, this is, I don't want to say slippery slope, but I think you're right. Like this comes to the surface in so many different conversations, if only implicitly. And so I want to go back into the scriptures and maybe we can, as best we can in the time that we have remaining as it fleets away from us, give some kind of overview or survey of this. And there's a lot of well-known passages, but I think there's also a lot of confusion on what we should think about tithe. And so for me, the best place to start is, let's look really quickly, if we go to the scriptures, about tithing before the law, like before the law of Moses. And what's interesting is it's very clear because the scripture only gives two passages that speak of the tithe, believe it or not, before the law. And they're both centered around the two Jewish patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob. And so in Abraham's life, we have this very famous interaction that he has with Melchizedek, 
after he defeats uh, some of the kings who are with him and he comes, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him in the Valley of Shiva and they go through the whole process. And in that passage, this is what's crazy to me. We're, we're told that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek and it's presumably as an expression of gratitude to God for enabling him to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. And I see lots of people go to this passage because, again, it's the first explicit mention of this 10%. And those who believe that tithing is binding upon the New Testament believers sometimes will argue that since tithing was practiced before the Mosaic law was given, it must also be practiced after the Mosaic law which of course is made obsolete by the establishment of the new covenant and the sacrifice of Christ. And so even if we just take this passage, one of two, the other one is Jacob there to me, when I read this, there's no evidence in that text that tithing was commanded by God. In fact, everything in that text leads us to believe that giving this tithe was completely Abraham's decision and choice. Yeah. And so we have no evidence that this was like his general practice. And in addition to that, this tithe came from the spoils of victory that Abraham acquired by some kind of military might. Yeah. And you know, this, this is one of the things I think people get wrong when they're reading old Testament narrative is this age old question of descriptive versus prescriptive, right? So yes, some exactly. texts, some texts are purely descriptive in that they're simply telling you what happened. Um, it's not, right. it's not even always the case that a descriptive text yields prescriptive principles for us, right? So you, you can read a text and the only thing that God is attempting to accomplish in, in that text is to recount a historical event to you. So even if just in, um, even in this passage, right? Well, Abraham raised an army out of his own household. So that must mean that we should have enough kids in our household (laughs) to raise an army if we needed to. Like that's, I I actually believe it or not. I've heard people make that application that Abraham was so, so fruitful and so productive that he was able to raise an army within his own family and so therefore we should be equally productive that we could, we could accomplish sort of like civic or uh, secular pursuits just with the productivity of our own household. Like, I think most of us look at that and realize that that is a totally ridiculous principle to draw from this kind of auxiliary fact that Abraham had enough fighting men in his family to go conquer and attack this kingdom that had kidnapped his, uh, his nephew. Right. But but we have to remember that even though not all descriptive texts have prescriptive principles, most probably do. And so even though we shouldn't look to this passage to say, well, Abraham gave a tenth, therefore we're mandated to give a tenth. um, That is not a good principle to draw. But the principle that Abraham was generous out of his own um, abundance and he gave voluntarily right. to the, this king of peace, this king of righteousness, who was a priest of the most high God. That's a principle that I can get behind as far as a, a sort of like a natural law principle that is just present in the text. Man, I was trying to like tease that out for a longer period of time. Like you just, <laughs> you just showed our entire path. No, but you're right. And so I want to move like quickly, but I also think it's worth um, sharing like the, the second reference with Jacob because it falls exactly long as you just said. So this is Genesis 28, the two verses beginning in verse 20. 
Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a 10th to thee. So once again, Nowhere are we told that God commanded Jacob to give him a tithe. And again, along with Abraham's example, it appears that the giving of this tithe was again volitional, at least on Jacob's part. And also there's no evidence in the text to suggest that tithing was the general practice of Jacob's life once again. And, and even if you, say, you want to make the case, well, it was, if he did in fact begin to tithe after God fulfilled his promises to him, that still would have meant that he delayed tithing for approximately 20 years. So like all that to say, these two examples, which are often cited, and sometimes I would say with nefarious intent to like bring a burden upon Christians, and sometimes very innocently, as just like you said, as a prescriptive example or seemingly so, these two examples are the only examples of tithing to be found in the Old Testament before the law is given. And both were examples of voluntary giving and neither was required by God. So in neither personage, do we see an example of tithing as a general practice of life? In fact, in Abraham's life, it appears that we have a tithe of the spoils of military victory given to God's priest on a one-time-only basis. And if really our only evidence to obligate believers under the new covenant to tithe rests on these two passages in Genesis, it seems to me that we're resting on pretty shaky ground. I mean, I think there is a greater draw by looking at tithing under the law but that brings in itself its own conundrum and I think its own problems. So how do you understand, I'm just putting you on the spot, Tony, how do you understand like tithing under the Mosaic law? Well, the thing about the Mosaic law that we have to remember is that it, it's a particular uh, application in most cases of God's righteous uh, nature and his righteous precepts to a particular context and time and place. And so when we talk about the law, we have to distinguish, even though the scripture doesn't explicitly make this distinction, there's no like verse that makes this distinction. We can talk about the law in basically three categories and I'll go kind of backwards. We can talk about the, the civil law, which is the laws that were present that governed the political and governmental society of the nation of Israel, right? Think geopolitical laws, laws about how the government is supposed to function, laws about uh, how you interact with your neighbor. How how do property markers work? Should you build a, a railing around your house? Like those kinds of laws are civil laws. Um, then there's also the, the ceremonial laws. So those govern the religious life of uh, Israel in terms of the ceremonies that they were to, um, to partake of, the ceremonies they weren't, dietary restrictions. And then there's the moral law, which is eternal. It's a reflection of God's nature you know, kind of most explicitly given in the 10 commandments, but these are, these are laws that are applicable at all places in all times, more or less the same way across the board everywhere. So think the 10 commandments, the tithe does not fall under that category of universal moral law where it falls right. is partially there's, there's elements of the tithe that are part of the ceremonial law and there's elements of the tithe that are part of the civil law. And that's because the civil and ceremonial reality of Israel was intertwined with each other. And so these laws were basically established by God in order to finance this, the religious and civil, 
uh, entity of the nation of Israel and that the temple apparatus, all of that was built there. Um, the moral law doesn't seem to have any specific um, directions or requirements surrounding how much we give, if we give. Uh, and part of that is because it's meant to be a universal, almost a secular uh set of laws. And, and don't take that the wrong yes. way when I say that. It's meant to be laws that are applicable to all people at all times and all places, regardless of their religion, regardless of their um, their political or governmental context, regardless of the nation they live in, the time they live in, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, whether they're you know wealthy. It, it, it's the, the moral law is universal in that way. And so when we talk about right. the the tithe in relation to the Mosaic law, we have to understand well, what happens with the civil and ceremonial laws after the nation of Israel no longer exists. Right. That's well said. Like, so let me bring us to a passage of scripture that I think exactly demonstrates the point that you were just making. So this is Leviticus 27, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, 27 verses 30 through 33. Thus, all the tithe of the land of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one fifth of it. And for every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. So to your point of the specificity and particularity of this instruction, Notice that in this passage, the tithe is described as the product of the land, the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree, herd or flock. So the first thing we ought to notice if we're interpreting this rightly is that the tithe was not the giving of money. In fact, nowhere in all the scriptures will you find anything that references tithing as the giving of money to God. And this tithe was probably given on an annual basis every year after the land had been harvested, because of course that was like the natural rhythm of what we're talking about here by growing food and developing flocks and breeding animals. So I think we can really see in this that our weekly giving of like 10%, if that's our conviction, of, of income, that's like a far cry from like the biblical practice of tithing as we're seeing it developed here under the Mosaic law. So there are essential elements, like you said. And I think if we, we can safely conclude that the tithing had nothing to do with the regular giving of money on a weekly or monthly basis, but instead, it had to do with this ordained worship of God in the Old Covenant age. So the command, in my opinion, to tithe, and this might be a trigger to some, like the command to not eat shrimp or oysters, has been made obsolete and it's set aside by the inauguration of the New Covenant in the death of Christ. Because the tithe was God's ordained tax, kind of like what you said, under the Old Testament theocratic system. So think of it this way, and maybe this is extreme, you tell me. If someone truly wants to tithe according to scripture in that definition, that particular specific definition, that brother or sister would have to do some of the following. They'd probably need to quit their job and buy a farm so they can raise herds and grow crops. They'd probably need to find a Levitical priest to support. They probably need to use their crops to observe the Old Testament religious festivals like the Passover, unleavened bread, all that good stuff. They actually should probably begin by giving 20% of all the crops and herds to God. You can read about that in Leviticus itself as well. And they would expect as what is the, the normative behavior of God to curse them with material deprivation if they were unfaithful or bless them with material abundance if they were obedient. 
And so like we all recognize that Christ has done away with the Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, and the religious festivals in Christ. That is like the freedom, the blessing, the loving kindness of our God. And if that's true, then the question I think we ought to ask, and we often don't, is why are we trying to hold on to the tithe, which was part and parcel of all these Old Testament ordinances? Yeah. You know, the other thing about the Old Testament tithe that most people miss is there's actually provisions in the Old Testament law for what to do. If, for example, you can't, you had such a bumper crop that you just physically can't get all of your, all of your crop 10%. You just can't get it to Jerusalem because that's the other element. Right. The tithe was supposed to be brought to Jerusalem. You're not bringing this to like right, the exactly. local priest in your, in your town. You're bringing this during the festival seasons. And so, you know, there's this provision in the law where if you're, if you have such a good year, you have so much abundance that you can't even carry all of it to Jerusalem. You sell that. You convert it to some sort of liquid money, some sort of uh, currency. And then what do you do with that currency? Well, you don't bring that currency to the priest. You go to Jerusalem and you throw a party. Like this idea right. that the right. money the money that is generated automatically goes into the coffers of the church because that's just what you happen. Uh, we're going to get to it. I don't want anyone to think that we're saying don't give to your local church. But this <laughs> idea that the, the money... Uh, that your your financial money, because essentially, like you're the finance guy, but essentially, money is this made up concept where we keep track of people's labor and how how much productivity they've generated, and then allow them to trade this made up thing for other people's productivity. So rather than me and you right. trying to try to finagle how much my uh, how much my time helping people at the hospital is worth in terms of buying a TV at Best Buy, like rather than trying to quantify that the hospital quantifies, it says you're worth this much imaginary number. And Best Buy says this TV is worth this much imaginary number. So now we're going to make that exchange. But in the Bible, in the old Testament, when that kind of exchange is made, where you take the productivity of a person, you convert it to currency, that productivity doesn't go into the church. The, the stuff that goes into the Old Testament church is practical things that were used to forward the uh, ministry of the church in in actual concrete yes. ways, right? It's it's grain right. that's used to make the sacrifices. It's meat that's used for sacrifices and to feed the priests. It's uh, materials that are able to be produced and, and purchased in order to make repairs to the temple. So this idea that our money automatically goes into the church and that's the only way that contributions make that is intimately tied to this idea of 10% because that's all surrounding what happens in the old Testament. That 10% is there sort of as a tax. The old Testament tithe is really more of a tax. It's a religious tax. It's a civil tax. That's why it's part of the ceremonial and civil laws. Yeah. And you know what? That just reminded me that when we get to the book of Samuel, and the people of Israel are requesting a king and Samuel goes before God and God says to him, it's not you they've rejected, it's me. And then Samuel does this a wonderful thing. He's like almost like a typical lawyer here where he gives all of the, it's like a giant PSA, like here is all of the warnings of what's going to happen if you get the king and the people listen to all this stuff and they're like, yeah, that's fine. We'll totally be down with that. Yeah. And there, you know, there's some very uh, almost like demanding, uh, they're going to be exasperated with the king at times. One of those things is that they will basically owe him 10%. So it's interesting that we have even there like an expression of all that to say it's more about tax 
than it is about the low bar for giving. And so like, let's launch in by way of like conclusion to at least get to some of then what the New Testament says, because it strikes me that we should have put a disclaimer earlier on our conversation that said something like, listen to the end of this podcast because yeah. we're not shutting down giving. What we're trying to do is understand what the scripture gives us in terms of a freedom of flexibility and a standard for giving that is more aligned or, or is just aligned with the new covenant as opposed to just the old, just like we would look at that standard in any other realm of living. So the interesting thing to me about the concept of tithing under the New Testament is actually it's almost virtual abstinence. Yes. Now there is four passages that mention tithe and often they're used in a pejorative way. And so we probably don't have time to, to get into all those, unfortunately. But what I would say is this, the New Testament never gives a percentage point as an obligatory and required standard for giving. And instead it's, it's almost, if you want to say it this way, it's almost worse Yeah. because the scriptures declare, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And we're quick to quote that because it makes sense with the character of God to understand that God is the one who gives and any understanding of giving must begin with the fact that God is a giving God for God so loved the world that he gave loving leads to giving and love apart from a willingness to be inconvenienced is not genuine. So the old Testament tithe was required by law. I mean, I th- hopefully we've made that up a point of saying that the Jews were under compulsion to give it. The new Testament teaching on giving focuses on its voluntary character. So Paul says in second Corinthians eight, three, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So this voluntary giving is exactly actually what Abraham and Jacob were doing before the institution of the law. And it's what all Christians are to be doing today. So my conviction is that believers today are free to give the amount they choose to give. If they want to give 10% as Abraham and Jacob did, they're perfectly free to do so. However, if we decide to give 9% or 11% or 20% or 50%, then we might do that as well. The standard of giving is not a fixed percentage, but the example of the wonderful savior. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. So like if we're speaking to our, those in the family, and this is a family conversation. So loved ones, salvation is the generosity of God. And if that is the standard, then it's very possible that 10% is not enough because if we're to give in such a way where there is a pain that comes along with the sacrifice, then it's very likely that 10% is not enough. And we shouldn't think that it is. Does that make sense? It does. And you know, when you think about the nature, we're going to get a little philosophical here. When you think about the nature of Let's do it. compulsion, right? It is not possible to be, uh, to demonstrate love by doing something compulsory. And what I mean is, um, if, if my, uh, my manager tells me that I have to do task A, right? And I want to show my manager how much I appreciate their mentorship, how much I appreciate all that they've done in teaching me my job, blah, 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 whatever it is. I want to show them my appreciation. 
the reason we talk about going above and beyond is because if you don't go above and beyond that which is required, you're not actually demonstrating love. You're just doing what's expected. You know, it's yes. kind of like, the, I don't remember exactly the the context of the parable, but there's that passage where, you know, they say at the end of the day, we're just unprofitable servants, right? Jesus right. is talking to his disciples and, and he's using this language to talk about like, well, if, if all you do is um, that which is required of you, then you're just you're just following orders. And that's, that's why Paul says in second uh, Corinthians eight, eight, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. And so the, the church in Corinth, and I want to read a, a little bit of a longer passage here, just as we close this out. Um, the church in Corinth is being exhorted, not just to give what is required of them because there isn't anything required of them. They don't have to give to the yes, contribution. Exactly. They've, they've exactly. already made a, a commitment. They've committed a certain amount of themselves. So Paul is in a certain sense saying like, Hey, you guys, you guys said you were going to do this and people are depending on it. So you better step up and actually do what you said. But here's, here's what he says. Um, starting in chapter nine, verse one. Now it's superfluous to me for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, which I boast about to you to the people of Macedonia, saying Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all times, all things, all times, you may abound in every good work as is written. Mm. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, if you go through this section where Paul is talking about uh, the, the gift of the collection for Jerusalem, there are several really clear principles that come out. The Corinthians are supposed to give commensurate to their means. Right. He's not asking right. someone who only makes two hundred dollars a week to give three hundred dollars like he's not asking for that. But they're also supposed to give sacrificially. Right. You should be giving enough that it hurts a little bit that you have yes. to give up something and and you should be giving generously and cheerfully, not out of compulsion. And so the whole principle of the Old Testament tithe is that God's people were compelled by law to do a certain thing. The whole principle of the New Testament principle of generosity is that God's people are no longer compelled. And here's where the kicker is, um, is that God loves a cheerful giver, not because of some principle in God where like he needs your money and he's, he's really thankful that he gets it because he really needs it. But because in giving cheerfully and freely, we reflect our love for each other because we reflect God's love for his people. And right God on. gave freely, therefore we should give freely. God gave sacrificially, therefore we should give sacrificially. God did not give by compulsion, but he did so by grace. So it's important as we look at the tithe, as we look at um, how much money we give to the church, it's important for us to keep those principles in mind. Otherwise, we can go all sorts of crazy. You could be donating 50% of your income. And if you think that that is required of you by biblical law, 
then you're not actually going above and beyond what you think is biblical law. Yes. You're not actually giving yes. freely out of your abundance. You're giving out of compulsion. If you think that what's required of you is 2% or 1% and you give 2% or 1%, then you're also giving out of compulsion. The, the key to it in terms of New Testament Christianity is that, and this is, this is all of the civil and ceremonial law, the Old Testament type of the law, the law was determined and was there to show you we didn't go there, but I wanted to, was to show how far <laughs> short you fall. Preach it. How far short you fall of the standard of God. Everything in the New Testament, all of the fulfillment of those biblical laws, all of the modifications of what you might call the, the, the Christian ceremonial law, all of those are designed to reflect the abundance of God's grace, which has been given to us. And, you know, we won't go there, but go back and listen to our episode on Christian liberty. Uh, we talked about uh, Christian liberty. We talked mostly in, in the arena of like drinking alcohol or watching TV shows. But this is another area. The beauty, the beauty of the modification of the, the yes. principle of giving is that now we are free to give whatever we want. And everything right. we give, because it's not compulsory, everything we give to the church, if we give it out of a good, out of the right motivations, if we give it out of a, out of a heart that desires to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve his people, all of that is gracious and out of our abundance. We are free to do that for God and for our neighbors. And this is one of those disciplines, I think a spiritual discipline even, that is so important because what it does is it reveals something about the character of God as we express it. So think of it this way, and this is what I've been really pondering a lot, is that in those passages, those scriptures that you just read about the Corinthians, what they were willing to do, and I think this is the new rule of law with application to giving, is they were willing to forgo a legitimate want so that they might supply a legitimate need. Yep. And the question is, do we give like that? Do we give in such a way that we're willing to give us something that we could reasonably buy with our own money, that we could reasonably enjoy so that we might need meet in a practical sense the, meet, the needs of others in the church? And so the beauty of this is that because Christ gave it all, he asked that we do the same type of thing. And this is not to say that we can't enjoy the resources and the gifts that God gives us, but it is to say that we do not get our sense of giving so tightly coupled with something that is outmooted like this requirement of 10%. And that puts a different kind of burden on us, but the burden of love is the burden of freedom. So that, like you said, we are not compelled in such a way where there is a standard by which we feel if we do not achieve the standard, we do not get some kind of meritorious reward that we ought to have earned. But instead, that love always and in every way is expressive in sacrifice. In the sacrifice, just like basically Jacob serving for uh, his wife is like so small in comparison to the love of God that we say, it's almost like I didn't even notice it. Yeah. It's getting to that kind of heart attitude. And so I think of like one final example, you know, my wife showed me this video around the time of Halloween. It was a video that was captured in candid. It was from a, one of those like, uh, like security cameras in somebody's house. And these people did what some people often do on Halloween night. And that is they left out a giant bowl of candy with a sign that said like, help yourself or take one. And so it's this little captured incident of this young boy. I don't know how old he is, like maybe three or four. And he comes up to you, see him approach the bowl. He has this giant bag of candy that he's bringing along with him in tow. 
And when he sees the bowl, he realizes that it's totally empty. And there's this moment that's almost as if it were dramatized or scripted where he looks at the ball and he looks at his bag and he looks back at the ball and he sees there are other kids coming behind him up to the house and seeing that his ball or his candy is bag is entirely full. He starts to take some of the candy out of his bag and put it into the bowl so that others can have it behind him. Yeah. I think all of us have this kind of hallmark moment. Our hearts leap when we hear that kind of thing. We think it's so touching. And I think the reason why is you and I don't have children, but I know from the children I've witnessed in the wild, so to speak, or the ones that are friends of mine who have children, that they love it. I'm not sure there's anything better, actually. They love it when their children, their young children, are volitionally generous. Yeah. Especially when they share something like candy or their dessert. You know, and so it made me start to think, what kind of children do parents want? And then what kind of child of God do I want to be? Yeah. Because the standard is not just that as we raise our children, that they might obey some kind of prescripted law that says, well, you really ought to give regardless of how you feel about it. And here's the standard. But they, we want our children to be volitionally generous out of love. And so I think that's the kind of standard that the New Testament sets for us by way of a juxtaposition and comparison with the Old Testament standard, which was there for a means and for a time to demonstrate the heart of God. And in fact, we lost it. We didn't see the, the heart of God behind the precepts. And so Jesus comes to clarify that, not just by way of his preaching, which he does exceptionally well, but by the giving of his own life unreservedly, such that he didn't give himself in a 10% or 20% or 50% way, but 100%. That's the standard. Yeah. And so I think in answering this question, I hope what we try to do is, one, kind of decouple this idea that what it means to give is to give 10% to the church. And to second, to couple tightly this idea that what it means to give is to give in a way that's Christ-like with freedom and with love and with concern. And I say that not in any disrespect, but with deference to everybody who's listening and especially to you and I, because that's the challenge of good Christian living is to live that kind of way. And it's immeasurably more difficult because it's easier just to say the Bible says it, I believe it, I'll do it. Yeah, It's much more difficult to weigh out what it means to say, it's not about how much you give, but how much you keep, or it's not about how much you write the check for, but the heart attitude with which you write that check. All those things are far more complicated and require the kind of introspection and processing that I think is related to good Christian living. And so that is, I think, really what the divines were after when they put together all of these different expressions in the confessions. And I think really what we ought to be after. So I'm really hoping that people don't feel like we're saying, well, that you shouldn't give 10%. It's not necessarily at least what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think we're, we're held to a higher standard and we ought to examine our convictions to make sure that they're gravitating toward that higher standard. Yeah. Yeah. Let me put it this way. Um, at the risk of potentially canceling out everything we've said so far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> giving giving to the church financially supporting the church is not optional for Christians. Oh no, um, for sure. And and you know uh, this is the way that I I like to think about it. And and this is how I sort of reshaped my thinking because I, I used to sort of have this perspective of like, well you know like the church doesn't need my money and if I have a little bit of extra then I'll give it to them. But if we go back to what we said about what, what money is, right? Money is this way that we sort of translate 
productivity into some sort of universal language that we can then keep accounts with. And so when I choose to give my money to the church, essentially what I'm doing in essence is I'm giving my productivity to the church. When I go to the right. hospital and I work for eight hours and I make X dollars, um, I have the choice to either use that productivity that I generated, my, my time and my effort. I either have the choice to give that to to God and his people and, and his ministry or to use it for my own purposes. And God gives us the freedom to make a decision about how much of our productivity we give to the church and how much we give to uh, to our own purposes, right? If we go back to the Sabbath, and, and actually I think there could be some really fruitful ground in a future discussion about how the fourth commandment actually relates to this concept of the tithe. But if you go back to that, the, the fact that God gives us, if, I love the way that the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism phrases this, is when it says what's, or what is, um, uh, you know, what are the reasons annexed to the, third, uh, the fourth commandment? The reasons the next of the fourth commandment are in part that God allows us six days of the week to do, to go about our common business. So if you, if you break it up into seven, he only asks for a seventh of our time in terms of, of our, our mandatory, you have to worship, you have to spend this time worshiping Jesus. He only asks for a seventh of our time. We have the freedom in the other six days of the week to use them. However, we see fit as long as we're not sinning, Right. The tithe is very similar to that. I don't think you can make an argument that that there is a mandatory requirement of any percentage. But if you're not giving something, uh, I think 10% is actually a very good starting point. If you're not sure, 10% is not that much. Like most people can cut 10% out of their budget by by simply like driving a little bit less, take the bus two or three days a week, or don't stop at Starbucks for a day or two. Like 10% is not that hard to carve out of your budget. So if you're looking for a way to get started, to sort of build habits and to sort of step out in faith in terms of demonstrating to God, I'm willing to sacrifice, even though I'm scared, even though I I don't understand how my budget's going to balance if I, if I cut this 10% out, this is not some sort of like reward principle, right? right. When, when Paul says that uh, God supplies freely all things, all sufficiency and all things at all times, he's not talking about temporal things. If you cut out 10% of your budget, it's possible you might go a little hungry. Like it's possible that you may not be able to pay your bills, but stepping out in faith is a way to say, God, I trust you to take care of me. Even if I don't understand, even if I don't quite know uh, how my bills are going to get paid, or if my bills are going to get paid, I trust you to take care of me. And so, so I think that that's a good, a good guideline. And the Christian, here's the the paradox, and I'll end on this. The paradox of the New Testament, um, New Testament principle on giving is that what you're required to do is give voluntarily. And, right. and I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how to account for the fact that we're required to to voluntarily do something and somehow that still makes it not voluntary, except to say that this is just what Christians do. Christians voluntarily give of themselves because our Lord voluntarily gave of himself. That's what it really boils down to. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think that's a good way to wrap us up is this idea that this is not unlike irresistible grace, isn't it? It's this concept that when God has so thoroughly transformed us and regenerated us that we cannot help but give. And so it is both the standard and both reflective of our own volition, because that's what love does. 
I mean, people who are married, if you were to ask a husband or a wife, well, why is it that you want to watch a movie with the other or make them dinner? They would, they would say like, well, because I love them. Right. And so they would say like both, I'm required to do those things in a sense because it expresses that love in the most practical of ways in the realm of generosity, but also because it is what I do in that role. And so I think that's what we sh- we ought to like land on is this idea that Christians ought to be expressive of their love and their generosity toward Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit in a way of giving that is practically demonstrated in the handing over of money. But we need to be careful about how we try to associate that with the Old Testament and draw uniquely and specifically from some kind of mandate that was specific to a time and a place. It's almost like we cheat a little bit, so to speak the sense of what it means to give by tying it directly just to tithe in the Old Testament. The standard is far greater than that and actually far better than that when we look to what Jesus Christ has modeled for us. And so like, I wish we had another two hours because there's so much fertile ground here where I think, I actually think that what God requires for us in giving is one of the ways, one of the very deep, profound ways that he breaks us for his glory because I always think about coming from a pastor's family. I have this proclivity anyway to feel very strongly about the giving to the church because I know that that supports the work of my father who labors desperately and deeply and profoundly and meticulously and over many hours to bring the scriptures and to counsel and to be a shepherd. But beyond that, I think of the example in the Old Testament where God says even to the Levites, you need to give as well. And I remember growing up in the church and talking to my father, I know if you and I talked about this before, but in talking to him and saying, when I was much younger, why doesn't like the church just cut the middleman out? Like I can do the math here. Why don't they just pay you 90% of what your stated salary is? Because you always have to turn around and give it. And what he expressed to me was the intent of God's law in this way was to demonstrate a ritual and habitual way of volitional giving for everybody, including those who are being compensated by the church. And I was like, that preaches that attitude that says like, this is what God intended for us to do is to give. And in many ways, it's so easy for us to write the check sometimes in our culture, as opposed to giving of ourselves. And, And Paul talks about that. But let me end by saying this. I think you're right on the challenge that you gave is, is very strongly pressed on me even now. And that is, I think in the most of the Western culture, what we're asking for is not even necessarily the kind of giving that says, I might not eat as well as I want right now, but it's the kind of giving that looks at how we live and says, how extravagantly are we living? How much do I need to pay for coffee? How much do I need to pay for like these incidentals? How many times do I need to go out and saying, instead, is it possible that I ought to give up some of those things? to forego a legitimate want so that I might supply a legitimate need. Yeah. And that is a profoundly difficult question to answer. And the only kind of question that we can turn back, I think to our listeners and say, at least for me, I have enough problems with my own heart. So all I can do is leave your heart in God's hands to evaluate how you give. Yeah. Yeah. I could be super uncouth and ask everybody to give us money, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I will just wrap us up. Jesse, thank you for bringing this topic to us. Jackson, thanks for sending in the voicemail. Keep them coming, people. Um, we, we are probably going to do uh, between the end of MicaCast and 
uh, whatever whatever we do next, we're going to do several episodes that are just kind of grab bag episodes. Some of them will be me and Jesse come up with the topic. Some of them will be questions that we've gotten in the backlog. So get your questions in. We want to answer them. We want to approach them. Um, we do. So check it out. Send in the voicemail or send us an email. We'd love to take your questions and turn them into an episode. Yeah, we're kicking it old school. That's how we used to do it is we'd go from topic to kind of topic and we've got a little bit of a backlog there, but we want to get after some things maybe that we love to chat about, have an excuse to speak of that we haven't before. And so I, I hope, I appreciate Jackson's question because we've gone longer than we usually do, but I, I hope people perceive that's because like, this is a, a rich topic. Actually, I feel like we could speak a lot more. There's so much yeah. stuff that I'm sure you wanted to get into and I wanted to get into that we can't. So maybe we'll revisit it, but I love the willingness of our listeners to basically open the door on something that they're thinking of. And when they do that, it's super gracious because one, they're putting themselves out there to ask a question. And two, I always think this, somebody else has asked the same thing or is afraid yeah. to ask the same thing. So this is such a great service to brothers and sisters by just being willing to do that. So dial the number, leave a voicemail, drop a question, start the conversation. <laughs> I like the little cadence you had going. <laughs> did, did you like that? There was a lot yeah. of head nod that only it you saw good. there. It was good. It was, yeah. Full immersive body experience. People could hear the head nod. It was, it was real. <laughs> could they? That, that came through the yeah. audio. Well, Excellent. Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>